welcome to this episode of Stand Out, the podcast to better your business brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Listen in and you'll walk away with insights from exemplary members who share their business acumen and the newest ideas from authors and thought leaders relevant to the organizing and productivity industry. And now, here's your host, longtime NAPO member, Claire Kumar. Welcome to another episode of NAPO Standout, the podcast to help you better your organizing and productivity business. And sometimes that means bettering yourself. So I'm really excited today to dive into a topic which is relevant to everyone. You know, a lot of us have felt pressure to keep up with the Joneses, to keep our spaces looking beautiful, aka home edit, perfection, like stylized like a gorgeous Airbnb or a beautiful hotel. But that's a lot of pressure. It can be exhausting to keep up with. So I wanted to look at, you know, this question of what if we could, what if it didn't matter? What if we could reconcile this sense of expectation and instead decide to shape our spaces to suit us and the way we want to live? Now, my guest today, you're going to love her. It's Casey Davis. She had a life-changing revolution when enduring postpartum depression and ADHD during the pandemic. While taking care of her two small children, she realized you don't exist to serve your space. Your space exists to serve you. I'm so excited to explore how Casey has infused compassion into every aspect of home care. Let me tell you a little bit about Casey. She is a licensed professional therapist, author, and speaker. Casey is the creator of the mental health platform, Struggle Care, where she shares a revolutionary approach to self and home care for those dealing with mental health, physical illness, and hard seasons in life. Casey began her own mental health journey at the age of 16 when she entered treatment for drug addiction and mental health issues. After getting sober, she became a speaker and advocate for mental health and recovery. She now lives in Houston with her husband and two daughters. So welcome, Casey. I'm so, so thrilled to have you joining the the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Before we get into talking about the book, which just so everybody knows is called, I love the title, How to Keep House While Drowning, and uh, the subtitle, A Gentle Approach to Cleaning and Organizing. Before we do that, could you just tell me a little bit about your TikTok journey? Because you can tell me how many followers you have today, because it's changing all the time. And just give us a little hello, and this is what happened to me and how how it kind of took off. Sure. So I like to say that I accidentally became internet famous. I joined TikTok probably April of 2020. And today I have 1.3 million followers. Just a, just a few. Just a few. Just a yeah. few. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. My sister actually told me to join TikTok because she knew I was a little bit depressed. And she said, I think this will cheer you up. They're funny videos. And I got on and sort of pittered around a bit and eventually posted a couple of videos, probably two or three months in. So closer to like October, sorry, closer to like August of 2020, I posted a video of me cleaning my house. And at the time I had a newborn and a just turned two-year-old and the place looked like a bomb had gone off inside of it. Like there were clothes everywhere, dishes everywhere. You couldn't walk anywhere without stepping on or over something. And I've always kind of been overwhelmed by cleaning. Clean as you go is not something that has ever made sense to me or helped me at all. 
So I came up with this way of approaching an overwhelming mess where I would tell myself, you know what? There's only five things here. There's trash, laundry, dishes, things that have a place that are not in it and things that don't have a place. And I would just sort of systematically go through those categories in that one room. And I didn't expect the response that I got, but I had so many people comment on that video and say, this is the first piece of cleaning advice that has ever actually made sense to me, that has ever actually helped me. I had people comment and say, I just went and tried this because I've been avoiding cleaning for six months and I got my house livable in an hour. I can't believe how helpful this is. And then the second type of comments I kept getting were, thank you for showing your house because my house gets like this and I feel so ashamed. And that's when I started addressing the comments about feeling ashamed. And as a therapist, like the therapist part of me sort of kicked in and I said, well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this shame we feel. And that's sort of how I accidentally fell into this niche. And since then, I have just been hyper-focused on this idea of where our mental health and self-concept intersect with how we are taking care of our spaces. And that's what I've been doing now for a couple of years. It's a brilliant, just coincidental event that happened, like kismet. Do you remember back to the moment where you said, I'm going to put this out there? I'm going to show my house. Did it feel like a brave moment or was that just sort of an evolution of how you were expressing yourself on TikTok? No, it was, I would tell people all the time, you know, I almost didn't post it actually. I didn't know if anyone was going to find it helpful. I didn't know if it was obvious to other people, if people were going to say, yeah, that's like common sense or yeah, I've been doing that. And so I really almost didn't post it. I wasn't sure that it had any value. And I talk about that a lot. And that's kind of become my like personal motto on posting things is that like, I don't, I stopped assuming what other people were going to find valuable when it came to tips or wisdom or experience, because I mean, I almost didn't post it and I, and it changed my life that I did. Amazing. Amazing. I, I have found in the past two years that there's been an evolution to being more real and appreciating reality. You are clearly right there from the beginning of that. And uh, I think now there's a huge appetite. So while there is the aspirational, I want it to end up looking beautiful, that has its place. But so does the, here's where I am today, y'all. And I need to, this concept you have in the book of having survival mode. I thought that was super important, especially when we're going through difficult or challenging times. In my language, I talk about respecting capacity. So, you know, we, we shoot for maybe a, a 10 out of 10. I was giving a, a talk one time and, and um, in front of a group of women who had been through very difficult situations. And somebody said, uh, I have a problem. I don't want to aim for a 10. And it stopped me in my tracks because I thought, okay, I'm going to come clean here and say, this is what I'll just share a personal thing for a moment here before we come right back to you, because that's the point of this conversation. But I chose to disclose my MS in that talk, which I very rarely talk about because I explained what happened to me during one of the relapses, one of the attacks. And it took me half a day to get dressed to bathe, to have something to eat. It was a half a day. That was my 10 on that day. So I just sort of said, you need to define a 10 for every day and shoot for it, but honor where you're at. So coming back to you and this gorgeous concept of having a survival mode, you know, when you're going through something tough, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think a lot of us tend to struggle with sort of a black and white approach to things. And we feel as though if we can't do something quote unquote, right 
or excellent, then we shouldn't do it at all. And that's, I mean, some of us have actually been told that growing up, right? Do it right or don't do it at all. And I find that that can really get into the gears of our brain and sort of short circuit some things that that aren't helpful, right? When I stare at my kitchen and I think there's no way that I could get this done, either because of something happening in my body or something happening in my mind, or just, I don't know how to approach it. Maybe I know if I start, I won't be able to stop. When we look at it that way, it becomes, okay, my choices in this instance are to clean for the next six hours, be in physical pain, maybe be exhausted or to do nothing and go sit on the couch and then feel guilty and feel ashamed that I haven't done anything. And actually was a journey for me to realize, wait a second, there's a third option here. I could do some, I could do a little, I could half-ass it. And that any effort that I do was going to be helpful if I knew what the goal was. Like that's the second thing is that just going to do good enough or do a little is fine, but you have to realize what the goal is because many of us have this goal in mind when we come to home care or cleaning that the goal is that it has to look like the cover of a magazine that it has to be aesthetically pleasing. It has to be done. And what I really advocate for in this approach is to get away from this idea of what it's supposed to be and really focus on what do I need out of this space in order to function? So what do I really need to function in my kitchen? I need some clean dishes. I need a piece of the counter clean so that I can safely prepare food. I maybe need an access to a burner on my stove. And, and so all of a sudden you go from this ambiguous, I need to clean my kitchen to, well, here are four things that I could do in the next 15 minutes. Makes me think of Greg McEwen's word essentialism, where you're honing in on what you really need to create, which then stops the overwhelm in getting there. You have a, a lovely quote about anything worth doing is worth doing half-assed. I think I laughed. I laughed out loud at that one because I thought usually we're like, no, you've got to have a bar so high. But yeah, that's, I think that I got it right, the quote. Yeah. And I, I mean, some of it is I kind of have like a hate-hate relationship with the term do your best because of a few things. One, I have to tell you this comment that I got from somebody one time where they said that their therapist told them, if you always did your best, it wouldn't be your best. It would be your average. It would be your normal. And I thought, oh, that's a way of thinking about it, right? Like if you're always doing your best, then it's just your normal. It's not your best anymore. But the other part of it is that I am someone who, because I experienced addiction at a really young age, that part of my life was really marked with not trying at all. I stubbed my toe and I'm just going to tell everybody I'm too sick to go to school, right? I'm avoiding the painful things in my life and I'm being a bit disingenuous about my capacity because I don't want to face things. So I'm sort of blaming it on, I can't. And I wasn't someone who was willing to do hard and scary things emotionally. I wasn't someone who I was so afraid of failure that I didn't want to work hard. And so there's these emotional reasons for it. But what happened when I got sober and I started committing to showing up authentically and with integrity and honesty in my life, the pendulum swung in the other direction. And I realized that because I had spent so much of my life sort of under-functioning, under-performing, that I didn't even know what was appropriate. So and what I mean by that is that if I woke up and I wasn't feeling well, I genuinely had no concept for what is the level of feeling bad that is a, that appropriately justifies not going to work 
or what is the level of being sick that appropriately, because to me, if I could physically get out of bed, I felt like I should show up to work. You're so not alone. There's there's like an internal dialogue. Am I sick enough to like, how do, what's the barometer when we check in with ourselves? This book is so much about self-compassion to check in and then be kind to self. Just on that thought of being a young person and sort of being a little bit afraid of emotionally difficult situations, I'm hearing conversation after conversation of young person in school potentially right now and just not being able to cope with online learning primarily and with ADHD, undiagnosed ADHD in a bunch of cases. It's just been an unsuccessful system to be part of. And there's such difficulty raising your hand to say, I need help. This isn't working for me. So most parents I know, myself included, are finding out at the end of term (laughs) that there was a problem. And so it's interesting. I'm wondering if just this is just coming up impromptu now, do you have any thoughts you would say to the people that are listening that are like, are feeling like they're floundering, they're drowning, they're struggling to be able to say, this is where I'm at and I need some help. And I think it continues that conversation about, you know, do your best, because I think we need to redefine what best means. Some people listening need to throw that that sentence away completely because it's not serving them. But at the very least, we need to redefine what best means, because I think that we are in a society and a culture that says that best only refers to your productive output in terms of work or money or obligation to others, right? Going back to, you know, I wake up, I'm not feeling good. Well, I was tempted to think that doing my best was pressing on, even though I was in pain, pressing on, even though I was tired, pressing on. And there was a time in my life where I wouldn't meet an obligation simply because I didn't want to. And obviously that's a situation I need to press on and show up anyways. But I really didn't have a good sense of what does best mean? Because so many of us think that best means if you're not dead or dying. Or bleeding. Yeah, exactly. And it happens to us at work and school too. You know, when you're asked to take on a new project and you're thinking, well, if I have the time that I should do it, but, but the time for what, like there's, you could always take time from other things in your life, but it's not, I'm not doing my best. If I am falling apart internally, if I'm in pain, if I'm not being taken care of, if I'm not enjoying my life or content. And so I think this holistic view of what best means. And again, for some people like myself, I just got rid of the the concept altogether. I actually am not morally obligated to do my best at all times. I love this. This is a thread through the book is this moral neutrality concept. I'm like, what? What do you mean morally neutral? You applied it to messiness. You applied it to contribution. You mentioned it when talking about critical family members. (laughs) So this moral neutrality, can you explain that a bit? Because I thought that was just gorgeous. Yeah. I think that for a multitude of reasons, I could probably do a whole podcast on. Many of us have taken things in our life and attached a very heavy moral value to them. And we use these things, our success or failure at these various things, to measure whether or not we are a good person deserving of care and love and belonging. We use the our success or failure of, at these things to determine whether or not we believe that our character is worthy 
of kindness. And so we do things like say, well, if I can't keep my house clean, I must be a bad mother. If I can't show up in my work life and climb the ladder like everyone else, I must be lazy. If I can't make these types of grades, I must be stupid. All of these things that we've attached, if I can't be thin, I must just be lazy and not work hard enough. If I can't be rich, I must be, and all of these things that we attach this moral value to, I'm finding that the majority of those things are actually morally neutral. So morally neutral, meaning it's not attached to self-worth. At all. It shouldn't be attached at all. It shouldn't be part of the conversation. Nope. And most of those things, not only are they not morally valued, but they are simply functional. And so what I mean by that is that the way that you run your home is just a functional endeavor. Because again, your home is supposed to provide you with certain things to care for yourself, right? We all, we all need clean dishes and clean clothes and a safe path to walk and perhaps a little pocket of peace that makes us happy. So however you go about that is fine. And I think that's the same way when we think about how we're showing up to work, how we're showing up to school. And I think for a lot of students and parents, hearing that grades are morally neutral is sort of mind-blowing. And there are more important things than grades. But it doesn't give you bragging rights as a parent. Like what? <laughs> right? It's true. But that's, I think, what happens is that we're so deeply frightened that we're not worthy. We have to look outside of ourselves to find these measures of worthiness. It's validation, external validation in some kind of measure, whether it's pictures worthy of Pinterest or grades worthy of, of talking about. That's profound. You, you talk as well about this concept of adaptive imperfection. That good enough is perfect. Can you tell I love the book? Can you tell? <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. Tell me about this adaptive imperfection. What did you mean by that? You know, the phrase good enough is good enough has been around forever. And people would comment that on some of my content sometimes. It's like, yeah, you know what? Good enough is good enough. I wanted to kind of repackage that because to me, good enough is good enough. Sounds like settling. It sounds like, well, I didn't do my best, but just be okay with it. It's okay. You know, um, it's a we, we can't all be the best. We can't all. And it's like, no, it's not. That's not what it is. Good enough is perfect, especially when we're thinking about things like what's happening in our home. Like if I can figure out exactly how much effort it takes to maintain a sanitary, safe and functional bathroom, why would I spend one more ounce of my limited capacity doing anything more than that? Unless it makes me happy. If it makes me happy to do those things and not just happy because I feel like now I'm a good person or now I can put it on Pinterest, but you know, it serves my joy or peace or happiness. Why would I do beyond that to have an excellent life? You have to embrace imperfection. You have to consciously not be excellent at cleaning your fridge. You have to consciously not be excellent at most of the things in your life to have an excellent life because time and energy and bodily, mentally, mental functions are not infinite. And so when I talk about adaptive imperfection, I say we want to embrace imperfection, not just from this sort of woo-woo per, like perspective of then we'll feel better about ourselves. It's kind of warm and fuzzy, but from this idea that I am a person that has needs. And so for me, it was, you know, I have children, it's a pandemic that, so all of us have gone through this trauma. I had some postpartum depression. I have ADHD and realizing that 
the reason that I'm embracing imperfection is because I am someone who deserves accessibility. And to get that, I need adaptive routines. One example is I had a really difficult time doing my laundry when I was in the midst of postpartum depression. And I could get it in the washer, I could get it in the dryer, and then I couldn't get it folded or put up. I would just, it would live in a big pile on the floor. We we lived out of a pile of clean laundry for at least eight months. And every time I passed it, it was like, well, there's our pile of clean laundry. And it was a little bit stressful because, you know, you can't find what you need. And it's always... Have you looked on Twitter for this? Because I bought a, I bought a product to market that helped people fold clothes. And so I was doing market research on Twitter. There are people sleeping with laundry. There are people like, like it's a thing. Putting away clothes is, it's like the last mile. Like it's like, it's the hardest, the most expensive part of the journey. And it's the part that gets us caught up. And when we're stuck in this idea that, no, I'm, I am in a sense, morally obligated to have this laundry system in the way, because there are rules, you're supposed to fold it, you're supposed to fold it and put it away in everybody's individual closet, like those are just the rules. And I couldn't do it the right way. I couldn't do it according to the rules. And my choices are to go, okay, just try harder, I guess, just try harder, I guess, or to back up and go, you know what, laundry is morally neutral, it's just a functional task. And so what if I just skip the part I'm getting stuck on, which to me was the folding, and the putting away. And what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to take, cause my kids were like young. I was dressing both of them. And I just realized one day, why am I going to three different closets when I'm the person dressing all three of us? That was genius. And so I moved all four of our clothes, our wardrobes into our ensuite closet and made a master closet, a family closet. Yeah. And then I put, I took out everything that was in there and I put in these cubbies with bins and everybody had sort of labeled bins They had my pants, my tops, my underwear. And I just stopped folding everything. <gasps> mom, mom, what? I just put them in the bins unfolded. What's going on, mom? There's a folding crisis. No. And that to me is the perfect example of adaptive imperfection. So I'm embracing that it's not perfect, but I'm not just embracing that it's not perfect because, oh, everybody deserves a break. Like it's adaptive for me. For some reason, I am stuck on this step and I have created an adaptive process that meets my needs and my barriers, my legitimate barriers. And people will say, well, but now your laundry is going to be wrinkled. And my answer to that is like, well, it was wrinkled before sitting on the floor. Like it's, I get that it's still wrinkled, but at least now it's wrinkled in a way where everything is easy to find. I'm not overwhelmed by my laundry. The laundry is getting done every week and we have consistently had clean laundry every week put away for over a year now because I just went around the stuck part. There should be medals for some of this stuff, but there isn't. I mean, right? There should be. Um, it reminds me of the day I thought, I don't need to wash lights and dark separately. I, I don't need to. The thing I needed to do in my house was sports gear all on your own, not coming near anything of mine. Hockey equipment, that's, that's your own baby. The rest, I'll go together. No, and nothing happened. Yeah, there's like, there's no laundry police that are just gonna like pop out of the sky. And I think that that's key with when we're looking at things being morally neutral and having some self-compassion, because it's really all about looking at your realistic choices. Like if I am buried under stuff 
And I feel like I need to declutter my house to get to a place of functioning, but I can't seem to get things. I I feel like the right way is to donate things and recycle things, but I just can't seem to make that happen, whether because of my neurodivergence or my mental health or my lack of support. Getting real honest about your choices, which are like, okay, in that scenario, this person's realistic options are to do nothing and stay stuck or throw a bunch of stuff into the trash and gain back some functioning in their life. And you have to be real compassionate with yourself about like, those are my choices. I can't, I have to stop obsessing over how I should be doing, you know, door number three, which is declutter it and then take it all to the donation bin. Because like that, it's not, that's actually not a choice for me. And so many of us are afraid to be honest about what we are realistically capable of because we don't want to have to get in the same room with how ashamed we are that we can't make that magical third perfect right option happen. Yeah. I love that point because it's realistic. I remember shopping for eggs and I could be I could buy the free range eggs in plastic or I could buy the the regular eggs in paper and I was like hot damn, what do I do now? Because I can't, I'd have to go somewhere else to buy the free range eggs in paper. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen. So um, now I buy, I buy the the ones in plastic. I bought those for years. So yeah, we, we try and I like, you know, I'm, I'm steering away from doing our best here because I'm like, wait a second, (laughs) you're, you're having me rethink that, but we're, we're doing, we're making realistic choices to help our lives function. And then letting go of shame because shame is paralyzing. It's absolutely what helps you keep you stuck. Now, you also came up and it's it's toward the end of the book. And I love this too. You talk about a functional matrix. You have a nine square matrix with three elements in it. And you mentioned it before, this element of happiness. Tell me how health and safety, like what are the elements in your functional matrix that, and, and paint us a picture so people can kind of put this together. There's kind of two exercises that I suggest in the book. And the first is really breaking down the three layers of function for all of your care tasks. And that's when I talk about for every care task, cooking, cleaning, laundry, dishes, there's really three layers of function. The the bottom layer is the health and safety aspect. Like that's the number one reason or purpose of that care task. That's pretty much the same for everyone. And then the second layer is the comfort layer. So what in doing this task makes my space more comfortable for me? And then the third layer, that little cherry on top is happiness. And so the example I give in the book is when I think about cleaning my floors, I want to move away from what I used to think, which is, oh, I'm so lazy that I haven't cleaned my floors and valid adults keep their floors clean. Look at that, like all those value statements and move to, okay, what is the purpose of cleaning my floors? Okay, well, the health and safety aspect is that I want to remove any crumbs because I don't want bugs. I want to remove any all items that could be choking hazards. And I want to remove any tripping hazards. People need to be able to move throughout the space. So that that's the number one. The comfort level is that I really, I like to go barefoot in my house. And I really dislike the feeling of little bits of things stuck on the bottoms of my feet. And then that happiness layer is it makes me really happy when 
everything is clear and it's been freshly mopped and that like glean comes off the right. And the reason for doing that is because there's going to be times where I have the capacity to do that task all the way up to the cherry on top. But again, when I come into a survival mode, which is what we talked about earlier, maybe I'm sick or my family is sick. Maybe I, it's a, a lot of work stress. Maybe there's a pandemic. Maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's a hard day physically with a chronic illness. When you know what those layers of functioning are, it's easier for you to triage your space and go, okay, so today I'm too depressed to do anything, but I know that the basic reason is the health and safety and needing a path and not tripping. So I can't do it all, but what I can do today is I can clear a path from my bed to my bathroom and from my bed to my kitchen, and I can clean that path so that I have a safe place to walk to where I need to get in my home. And all of a sudden it's easier for you to make those decisions. So once you kind of understand those three layers of care tasks, that's when I also talk about this idea of this nine square matrix for setting priorities. And the way that that works is that you have a three by three, you know, square. So there's nine squares inside of it. On one axis, you think of the things that help you care for yourself and you sort of order them you know, you pick up nine things or so, and you sort of order them in what is takes the least amount of effort and what takes the most amount of effort. And then on the next axis, you're going to think about of those things, sort of think about the order of what of those things makes the least amount of impact on your quality of life and the most amount of impact on your quality of life. And when you lay that out, you have this sort of nine square thing. And then they're color coded in such a way that it helps you realize, okay, when I'm firing on all cylinders, all my supports are in place and I'm, and I have full capacity, I'm going to shoot for everything in this. I'm going to shoot for all of these things. Let's say I come under a little bit of stress. It tells me immediately that that bottom right hand square, the things in my life that make, that take the most effort, but make the least impact. That's what I need to let go of in that space. That's what I need to just go, you know what, that's not happening in this time frame, right? And I focus on the other two sort of levels. And then if I come into a true survival mode, then the only thing I'm really focusing on are the one, two, three, four, five items that go all the way up the least amount of effort and all the way across the most amount of impact. And it produces for you a list that is very counterintuitive. Because what happens is that let's say I put my priorities down, I come under a lot of stress, I go, okay, I'm just going to do these. Well, it's interesting that people, you'll see that exercising gets dropped off the list, but setting out my outfit for tomorrow morning stays. And you're going, well, exercise seems like it makes a much bigger impact. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm able to engage in many more helpful, caring activities with focusing on things that take a little bit of effort and then the things that make the most amount of impact, I'm actually able to engage in more care activities than I am if I were to just try and focus on the most important quote unquote. And so the net result is going to be a greater impact on my life. I'm getting more bang for my buck in terms of energy in and impact out when I structured things that way. And this is really how I started thinking in the pandemic. And because there are all sorts of good values, especially for me as a parent, you know, I really cared about 
you know, having limits on screen time. I really cared about having wooden toys and not electronic toys. I really cared about my kids getting outside every day and reading books and not yelling and hugging and telling them I'm proud of them. And when the weight of the stress of pandemic and postpartum and mental health was on me, I could not do all of those things. And trying to do all of them was resulting in me doing none of them. So I had to decide what of these good things am I going to deprioritize in order to prioritize other good things. Is this the drop the plastic balls piece? Yes. And so is that does it relate to that? Yes. And so some of that is looking at if I picture the things in my life as balls that I'm keeping in the air. And this wasn't a concept that came from me. And, and I talk in the book about kind of where I'd, I'd heard it, but this idea that some of these balls are plastic. And if I drop them, it's okay. I can pick them back up. They won't break. But some of these balls are glass. And if I drop them, the results will be disastrous. And so I'm going to need to drop some plastic balls, put some plastic balls down because I have to keep the glass ones in the air. And so there's lots of metaphors and exercises in the book for help like that, for helping you think through how do I begin to prioritize the things in my life? Because I can't, quote unquote, do my best in all things. It's impossible. I just want to say, I don't know what level of best this was, but I think the book is so insightful, full of gems and full of reframing opportunities that are just, it's going to help our listeners directly, I'm sure, but especially as we go out and work with clients and help cultivate the skills for people to really enjoy their lives. And so my urge is for everyone listening is to grab a copy of this book because it's going to help you reconfigure some language and thought processes around work, which are going to be around self-care and home care, all of that, which are going to invite just a broader plethora of options that are okay to pursue. And it just gives permission for that whole conversation. So Casey Davis, I need to thank you definitely for this book. In the YouTube, I already know what I'm going to ask you in the YouTube question now. And so I'm just going to invite everybody to check that out on YouTube on our YouTube playlist. And I want to thank you, Casey, for joining us today. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you. And for all the listeners, as you know, we love to get some feedback from you. So if you've checked out this podcast and what Casey resonated with you today, show us some love in social media. You can find us in all the places. And uh, as well, write a review, find us our podcast, all the places you can find it are noted at napopodcast.com. Tune in, let us know what you thought. I'm sure Casey would love to hear from you as well. And uh, so until next time, please be safe, be kind to yourself and enjoy your journey. That's all for today's episode of Stand Out, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.